the Audubon is one of, if not the most famous stretches of highway and collection of highway in all the world. It's this highway system in Germany. And people come from all over the world, from all different places, to be able to drive on this highway system. And the reason is that while there are some speed limits on the Audubon, about 60% of the highway system has no speed limit or maybe just an idea of the speed that you should go. And so the average speed that takes place in there sometimes is around 120, 130 miles an hour. So people go out to drive on these stretches of road, especially the ones without any sort of speed limit, to just go as fast as they can. Some people go to try to set world records. Some people go to just experience that feeling. But people like to go fast. And the Autobahn proves to us that when speed limits are taken away, we have this desire within us to go really, really fast. Somewhere along the line, a conception has grown up, and maybe it's been around it a little bit the whole time, but this conception has grown up around Christianity that it's a religion of rules, that the main purpose of Christianity is to teach us how to be good people. And so if we follow the rules and we check off the list, then that's what it means to be a Christian. But what if I told you that there were parts of our lives in Christ, there were parts of our faith, there were parts of Christianity that have no speed limit? You see, God, as a good father, wants us to live lives of joy. God, as a good father, wants us to live abundant lives, and he's given us the ingredients to that kind of life, and he calls us to use those ingredients freely, as much and as often as we can. And so before we move into looking at the fruit of the Spirit one by one, We're going to talk about one small phrase. I think it's seven simple words that could be easy to gloss over in this passage, but something that contains a lot of truth. And so we're going to focus specifically on the last half of verse 23 in Galatians 5 this morning. But I'm going to start reading at verse 22. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and here's where we'll be focusing. Against such things, there is no law. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, I pray that you teach us to see our faith, to see you, to see our freedom as it really is. And it would be something that brings us joy, something that excites us, something that we almost look at with disbelief because of how good you are to us by allowing us to have these parts of our lives where there's no speed limit, where there is no law, things that we can do and participate in as freely and as often as possible. So God, teach us what it means to to run freely in your grace and in your mercy and to be men and women who reflect the goodness that we receive through Christ and everything we do as often as we can do it. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to look at this small passage and break it down by just two really simple questions. And when we look at the phrase, against such things there is no law, the first question we need to ask is, what does this mean? What does this passage mean? 
Paul says in this one simple phrase something that we could spend 70 years unpacking. This is a passage of scripture that the first time I really noticed it several years ago had a really deep impact on me. It was just, you know, those times when a few words jump off the page of scripture and grab a hold of you. And so I knew when we were going to go through Galatians chapter 5 that I really felt like this was an important thing to spend a whole Sunday on. And as I sat down this week, I got a little nervous because there were only seven words to work with. And so I was starting to think, how am I going to fill an entire sermon based on this little tiny phrase? And then as I started writing, I started worrying in a new direction. Because I started thinking, how am I going to only have one sermon that talks about the depth and the scope of this simple passage that Paul lays out for us? Because there's so much here. There's so much depth to this one little phrase. And we've seen Paul talk about freedom in a variety of ways that don't seem to make sense with our understanding of freedom. Paul told us that to use our freedom well, we have to lay it down for other people. He told us that to use our freedom well, we have to follow the Spirit. And so he told us that sacrifice and submission are a part of our Christian freedom. And that doesn't necessarily immediately make sense to us. But of course it's good. But now, as Paul is talking about a freedom that we're familiar with, that kind of rebellious, licentious freedom that we understand to be real freedom, something that we can do as much as we want to with absolutely no penalty or no reward. When N.T. Wright translates this passage of Scripture in his translation of the New Testament, he says, there is no law that opposes such things. And I love the way that he phrases that because it answers that question. The first thing that we can answer that question with when we say, what does this passage mean? It means that the law, or really any law, cannot and does not condemn or regulate the fruit of the Spirit. There is no law that stands against these things that God is calling us to. There's no law that can get in our way of doing what what Paul is calling us to do here in this passage of Scripture. And whether we like to admit it or not, when something is against the law, there's good reason for it. So the road that we live on is a little backwoods country road, and I think the speed limit's 25 and a good portion of it, and there's good reason for that. Because it's nice and windy, a lot, of, a lot of hard hairpin turns in our neighborhood. It's not the most well-paved road. In fact, part of it, if you cross over this little bridge, is completely unpaved and a gravel road. And so if you're going too fast down our road, if you're breaking that speed limit and trying to pull 50 on Stewart Road, you're probably going to end up either in a tree or in somebody else's grill. Because it's dangerous to break that speed limit there. There are laws about not killing people, and we know why there are laws about not killing people. There are rules and regulations for a lot of different things, and for the most part, we can look at those things and recognize, whether we like it or not, whether we're uncomfortable when we get a speeding ticket because we were going 10 over, we know why those things are there. We know why those regulations and restrictions are there. In the same way, when it comes to Christianity, there are rules. There are commandments. There are things that Jesus expects of us and even requires of us. And there are good reasons for those things because God, again, is a good father who loves us and wants what's best for us. And so when something is against the law, there's, there's a reason and a rationale for that. And so in the same way, if there's going to be something that is beyond the law, something that's not against the law, there's good reason for that too. And so for this fruit of the Spirit to be free from any law, it means that these things are good. 
It means that these things don't break any sort of law in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And so as a good God, he gives us these good gifts. And so because there's no law, these things are good for us to do. It means these things are just. It means that they are right. It means that there is nothing that can stand against them and say, no, 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 patience isn't something that's good for you. Patience isn't something that you should do. You shouldn't be kind. These are things that are right and are good and things that should be a regular part of our lives. But even more than that, it means that these things are holy. You see, God gave the law in the Old Testament to show us what holiness looks like. God gave us Christ to save us and to free us from the law so that we could be holy like he is holy. And for these things to be above and beyond the law, it means they are holy things in and of themselves. They are set apart from any sort of condemnation or harm. These are virtues when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit that no law can put down. There's no ideology or no group that could ever condemn these because these things are the embodiment of freedom when they're lived out. When we're patient, when we're kind, when we're good, when we're all of these things, we are a living, breathing image of what it means to be free because there is absolutely no law that stands against those things that we do. So the law doesn't condemn or regulate the fruit of the Spirit, but because of this, The law doesn't condemn those who live out the fruit of the Spirit. Because the law doesn't condemn the fruit of the Spirit, the law doesn't condemn those who live out the fruit of the Spirit. We've talked about legalism and licentiousness a lot. But just as a recap, remember, legalism is the thought process that we have this huge debt that we owed, and Jesus paid that debt. And our response to that, instead of living like people who have been set free, is then to say, well, now how do I pay Jesus back? And we feel some sort of sense of debt and obligation that can make us bitter and tired. Or we can go to that side of licentiousness saying that because Jesus has forgiven my debt, then I've got this whole free bill to be able to run up new debt and I can do whatever I want and say whatever I want. And that tends to lead us like the prodigal son to find ourselves wallowing in our own filth. And these things, this legalism and this licentiousness introduces back into our lives the guilt and the shame that Jesus died to set us free from. It starts to have those things creep back into our lives that are telling us that we're not good enough or that we're not worthy of saving or that God doesn't love us enough because we're not doing all the right things. And so we start to feel guilty and we start to feel shameful when these things take precedent in our lives. But when we look through the fruit of the Spirit, it's easy to see that there is no guilt in love or joy or peace and patience. There's no shame and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness and self-control. And that's true because when we do those things, when we live out those fruit of the Spirit, there's no law that could ever stand in condemnation over us. In Lang's commentary about this passage of Scripture, he says this, Such virtues the law condemns not. This, however, implies, of course, against those that possess such qualities, the law is nothing. The law requires nothing more of them, and therefore also it can bring no accusations against them. Or rather, because the law can find nothing to oppose or restrain these things which fulfill its ethical purpose, the law has no power over those who bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. 
There is no place for guilt or shame when we live out these virtues, these characteristics that we're called to, because the law has nothing negative to say about those things. There's no one that can have anything rightfully negative about someone who shows too much kindness, or someone who's too gentle, or someone who is too good. There is no oppression and there's no condemnation that can come on anyone who lives those things out. We're set free in Christ to have the fruit of the Spirit. And then as we live them out, they remind us that we're free. It puts into motion this beautiful cycle of freedom. That Christ died to set us free. And because he sets us free, we can partake in these good gifts that Jesus has given us that remind us of our freedom. And so we become free so that we can love, so that we can have peace, so that we can be joyful, so that we can be patient. And as we are good, as we're kind, as we're patient, as we love, then those things just whisper in our ear over and over again, you're free, you're free, you're free. As opposed to the legalism and licentiousness that whisper in our ears, we give in to those things that we're in captive and that God doesn't love us. The reminder of the fruit of the Spirit is that you've been set free by Christ and that's why you're able to do all of these things. And because God loves you, he's given you this good gift. And the more that you partake in it, the more that you remember that there is no law that stands in opposition to you because you've been set free by Christ and these are the fruit of that freedom. When you love, the law requires nothing more of you. When you're joyful, the law doesn't have anything to say against you. When you're patient, the law doesn't have any more expectation on you and nothing can hold you back. There is no slavery. There's only freedom in fulfilling the fruit of the Spirit. And so the law can't condemn the fruit. It doesn't condemn those who live it out. But then we also see this amazing truth that those who live out the fruit of the Spirit are fulfilling the law. Those who live out the fruit of the Spirit are actually fulfilling the law. In the English Standard Version Study Bible, they talk about this truth that people who are living the fruit of the Spirit are actually fulfilling the law more than the people who were trying to fulfill the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. Remember, Jesus said very clearly that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he tells us how we live it out by talking about the two greatest commandments, where he says you love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. He says all the law and all the prophets are summed up in these two commandments. And then even Galatians 5, Paul says that we should love our neighbors ourselves and the whole law is contained in that one word. You see, the Galatians thought that they were fulfilling the law by trying to keep it. They were trying to add all of these things to Christ with the circumcision and the dietary laws and all of the ceremonial things. They thought if they could do enough of this stuff, then maybe they would be a little closer to godly. Maybe they would be able to fulfill the law that they didn't think Jesus was enough. But here, Paul is reminding the people that when you walk in the fruit of the Spirit, when you are loving, when you are joyful and peaceful and patient and all of these things, you're fulfilling the law far more than you ever could if you were following the dietary laws of the Old Testament. That this is what it looks like to truly follow the law that God has established in our hearts. When somebody is keeping the fruit of the Spirit, they're keeping the law the way that it was meant to be kept. 
James calls this law the law of perfect freedom. And that's what it is. When we live out the fruit of the Spirit, it's free people freely participating in the virtues and the commandments that are under no law or regulation for the glory of the God who sets us free. This is what the prophets were prophesying towards the end of the Old Testament. When people like Jeremiah would say that one day I'm going to write my law on their hearts. It's this. This is the law of the heart. This is the law of perfect freedom. This is what Paul means when he says, against such things there is no law. These virtues, these fruit of the Spirit are not only good for us, but they are good in and of themselves. And there is nothing that can stand against them and no condemnation that can come against them. And so for each and every one of us, when we live in a way that reflects the fruit of the Spirit, there's no law that stands against us. There's no condemnation that stands against us because we are fulfilling the law the way that it was meant to be kept. So that's what it means. But once we know what it means, what do we do? What do we do with this information that Paul tells us that against such things there is no law? It's a really great idea, but how does that fit into our lives practically? I think the first step that we have to take is that we have to fall in love. We have to fall in love. The National Football League has had a kind of a weird year. So you have a movie that comes out that talks about the concussions. There's been a lot of reporting on the level of concussions. People are a little uneasy with the level of violence in the National Football League. And so it's had a, it's had a dip in some of its viewing this year. The ratings have been lower, and that's not a thing that the NFL is used to. And so certainly the violence, certainly the concussions have something to do with it. We're also in the midst of an election season, so that has some play in it. But they started asking some of the players why they think that the viewership, that the ratings for the NFL has have started to decline. And several of the players had a really similar evaluation. Because the NFL stands for the National Football League, but there's another nickname that's emerged recently where people have started calling it the No Fun League. Because if you watch videos in the 70s, you have these guys scoring touchdowns like White Shoes. Guy, he's a name like Billy White Shoes Johnson. What a great name. And he would score a touchdown and he would just dance. Dance his little heart out. And they would have celebrations in the end zone. And it was glorious and it was exciting. And over the last 10 years or so, the NFL started cutting down on the ability to celebrate. And so now you get flagged. You lose 15 yards for anything that seems like an excessive celebration. Because they're trying to maintain this image because they've forgotten that it's, it's a football game, that it's, that it's a, literally a, a child's game, that they're playing on a high level. And so they've got this belief that because the celebrations have been pulled back that maybe people aren't quite as interested because it seems so stoic and so regulated. But it's a very natural reaction to want to celebrate in that kind of environment. Because this is a game that these men love, that they pour their lives into, that they sweat and they cry and they bleed for. And when they succeed in it, it's just a natural reaction that pours out of them where they want to celebrate. And that seems to be restricted. That can be our view of what Christianity is too. You run into a lot of people who view Christianity as something that is purely stoic and something that has to be restricted and keep the emotions inside. And listen, I'm not a very emotional guy, and so that's where I kind of tend towards as well. And so we've turned Christianity into a little bit of a no-fun league, that we think that it's good for us, that we think it's important, that we think it's something that should matter in our lives, but not something that should give us joy and not something that should cause us an emotional reaction. 
But Paul's trying to pull that out of us as he writes this passage of Scripture. I imagine when Paul writes these words, because he gets so excited all throughout this book, and we talked about this Tuesday night with our students. In chapter 6, verse 11, he says, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Paul's just getting excited just writing about this stuff. And so I have to believe that when Paul writes that phrase, against such things there is no law, he's expecting a joyful, passionate response. That when he says that there's no law against love and joy and peace and patience and all these things, that it should be something that excites us. But I know, at least for me, that reading these things and thinking of these things as the free things of our faith can kind of feel like getting socks for Christmas. Do I need socks? Probably. Am I thankful for socks? Yes. Am I going to get super excited about socks? Lydia's nodding. So Lydia is the one weird person who's getting jacked about socks while the rest of us normal people are thinking, I mean, good, I'm excited about having warm feet, but it doesn't get me off the couch. You know what I'm saying? Like, and so that's, that's what's happening here when I read this passage of scripture. Like, yeah, peace is good. Joy is a good thing. I'm excited. I get to have joy, I guess, but you know, it's not going not gonna to get me off my pew. I'm not going to celebrate this. But Jesus calls us to be free. And Jesus calls us to have an abundant life. But too many of us miss out on that because we see value in the wrong things. We let the wrong things in our lives excite us. We let the wrong things in our lives bring us this momentary celebration instead of what really should. And about that, C.S. Lewis says this. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I suggest that this notion has crept in from Kant, the Stoics, and there is no part of this in the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think if we look at this passage of scripture and we think, That's nice, God. Thank you for the joy and peace and patience. It's not that we don't see something of value here. It's that we don't value the right things. That picture that C.S. Lewis paints is such an important picture because he says we're like children who are content to just sit in the dirt and make mud pies and find incredible joy and incredible pleasure out of that when God is saying there is a holiday abroad over here. There's a beautiful vacation, something that you could never imagine. But Lewis says, we're just so comfortable with this because this is all we know. And we don't expect any more because we don't desire the things that God wants us to desire. We're far too easily pleased by momentary happiness in our lives. And so we don't take into account how good God wants us to have it. We've been content with our mud pies for far too long. And it's time to desire something more. It's time for us to fall in love with something better. 
Because this passage of scripture doesn't seem nearly as exciting as going 150 down the Audubon, but it absolutely should. We should learn to see things from God's perspective. Christianity is a religion and a faith that's founded on love. We're taught that we love God because he first loved us. And that before we ever wanted to pursue God, that he, out of this act of unbelievable love, offered Christ as an expression of that love to die on a cross and offer himself in our place to buy back our freedom from the slavery that we put ourselves in. And because it's a religion founded on love, we have to be people who fall in love with the things that make us whole. If God loved us enough to offer everything on our behalf, then we should absolutely be able to trust the fact that he wants more for us than we could ever want for ourselves. And so by wanting for ourselves what God wants for us, we are desiring to be whole. We're desiring to be what Christ has for us and all that he has. And it's so far beyond what we could ever do and what we could ever dream. When people fall in love, it's weird. People do stuff out of character when you start to fall in love. Your face changes and you blush and you you say things. You hear just big, strong guys talking about the beauty of her eyes, right? Like it, It just makes us weird and you get obsessive and you want to talk to people and you start worrying about things that you've never worried about before because you don't get a call or a text when you think you're going to hear, oh my gosh, something's happened, she's dead. You know, we just freak out because we're so in love and we're so concerned about that other person that it changes the entirety of who we are. It changes the way that we think. It changes the way that we understand that person. And when it comes to falling in love with with Christ and what he has for us, as we begin to experience this fruit of the Spirit in our lives, we should begin to fall in love because it's good for us. Because it's better than anything we could ever imagine. It's who we're meant to be. And as we fall in love, we'll see more clearly how the things that we once counted freedom are not freedom at all. Because once you go on that vacation, you start to realize that the mud pies weren't all that good, right? When you drive on the Audubon at 150 miles an hour, you start to remember that maybe 75 miles an hour really isn't that fast. Your perspective starts to change. Joshua Ryan Butler talks about how that perspective changes. He says, it seems to me quite possible that it is only when we've tasted the greatness of the kingdom that the cruelty of hell is revealed. That self-love seems preferable until we've encountered divine affection. That microscopic smallness of our autonomy can only be recognized as such when we begin to receive the expansive embrace of God. It's when Jesus raises us from the waters of baptism that we realize that we would never again want to be submerged in those suffocating floods of sin and rebellion. It's when the Spirit breathes the life of God into our gasping lungs that we realize that we would never again want to return to our self-contained life from before. It's when the Father gently removes the scales from our eyes with His gracious presence that our former freedom from God is revealed to be tyrannical enslavement in which we are the tyrant. You see, the reason why we might not find this passage of Scripture one that encourages us to be overwhelmed with joy is because we haven't experienced real joy. 
We might not see this as a passage about freedom because we haven't experienced real freedom. But the more that we pour these things into our lives, the more that we realize how good they are and how worthless the stuff that we used to hold dear really is. But to do this, it requires first and foremost that we change how we view God. Because I think we can all be guilty of this, of having this view of God as a divine taskmaster. They gave us this thick book of rules and regulations just because he wants to exert his authority over us and wants to make us do what he wants us to do. When in reality, scripture calls us to see God as a good father. And Jesus says, if a son asks his father for a fish and he gives him a snake, what kind of father is that? If a son asks for a piece of bread and a father gives him a rock, that's not a good father at all. He says if a humanly father can tell the difference between something good for his child and something bad, how much more can your heavenly father, who knows infinitely more than you ever could, how much more is he going to do what's good for you beyond your wildest imagination? And so we have to look to God as our heavenly father and trust that if he says that something is good for us and something is better for us than what we're leaving, then we should trust him with everything that we have. So we should fall in love with love. We should fall in love with joy, fall in love with peace and patience and kindness and all of these things. And we should fall so deeply in love with these that we get giddy about opportunities to be patient. That we don't think about patience as something oppressive and something disciplined, but something that we love and something that we adore. That we should be so kind and so gentle that we feel like we're getting away with something. That it should have built in it this idea that we love it so much that we can't believe that we get to do it. We have to fall in love with Jesus. And as we do, he'll teach us to fall in love with these gifts that make us more and more like him. And more and more like who we're supposed to be. And the more that we do these things, the more we'll realize how good and how beautiful they are. So we have to fall in love. And then we simply have to live like we're free. We have to live like we're free. Last week, Paul talked about some of the fruit of the Spirit, things like drunkenness and orgies and all of these things that reflect this desire to hoard in our lives. We talked about part of the things that the fruit of the spirit or the works of the flesh do in our lives is they convince us that we don't have enough, that Christ isn't enough, that we can't possibly have enough. And so it teaches us to just consume as much as we possibly can so that we can build this false sense of security on everything that we have. And so we want to sin and we want to take things in and we want to serve ourselves so that we have the support system so we feel like we're not going to fall. And it leads us to take in things to their excess until ultimately it kills us. When Paul tells us to put down the desires of the flesh, that's not a passive process that he's calling us to. He's not telling us simply to walk away from the flesh and to walk away from sin, but to walk towards something with an equal intensity and an equal passion. We looked at this idea of a tug of war a couple weeks ago, and whether it's a little bit or a lot, whenever that tug of war is taking place, the rope is constantly moving. It's not that you can just set the rope down and walk away, but he calls us to pull towards Christ and to pull towards the Spirit. 
And so the calling that we have in our lives is to replace the excess of our sin with an excess of good. So all of that stuff that we consume, all that stuff that we pour into our lives, as passionately and as fervently as we seek to sin, as we seek to love ourselves, as we seek to fulfill the desires of the flesh, that's the same kind of intensity that we should have when it comes to following Christ and pursuing the fruit of the Spirit. Because it shows that something has changed in our lives. You see, when once we hoarded and consumed out of fear of never getting enough, now through Jesus we can freely spend our love and our joy and our peace and our patience because we know that it will never run out. We fiercely consume sin and the desires of the flesh out of fear, but now we can give away freely because we know that we can never outgive God. We can never outlove God, that there is no line, there's no limit, there's no cap on what we can do with these things. Our calling in life is to take the fruit of the Spirit and to try to max them out. And as we do, we'll realize that they have no limit. We should take this passage of Scripture as a challenge from God. When Paul says that against these fruit of the Spirit, there's no law and there's no limitation, we can look at that and say, you know what? I'm going to try to prove you wrong. I'm going to try to love more than I ever possibly could. I'm going to try to be patient beyond measure. I'm going to try to find the limits of how good I can be. I'm going to try to find the limits of how kind and how gentle I can be and keep pursuing with everything that we have, and we'll find that there is no limitations to it. That's what living like we're free really is. We need to be spiritual adrenaline junkies. You know, these crazy people that just jump off cliffs because they need to. They, they start, this adrenaline just starts kicking in their lives, and they do this one big thing, and it doesn't quite give them enough of the rush, and so they go to the next big thing, and they go to the next big thing. Meanwhile, I'm just sitting on my couch watching them scared for them, you know, and they just jump off cliffs, and they ride their mountain bikes down crazy things, and they do all of this intense stuff because they just need that feeling of that adrenaline rush, and they can't max it out. That's how we need to be spiritually. That we just can't get enough of these things. And that the more that we pursue after them, the more that we get that taste in our mouths, the more that we fall in love, the more that we want to keep pursuing these things because there is no limit to how much we can take them in and no limit to how much we can give them away. We have to fall in love with the fruit of the Spirit. And we have to live like we love it daily pouring out of our lives measureless amounts of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And after all, these things are a reflection of Christ himself, that Jesus loves us with a love that's immeasurable. That Jesus, being God, has a joy that's unspeakable. That he is patient with us far beyond what we could ever imagine. And his patience with us knows no limits. That he is gentle with us beyond what we can comprehend. And there is no limit to how gentle and how kind he is with us. That he is perfectly in control, not just of himself, but of all things. And that he is good beyond what we could ever possibly begin to understand. And so when Jesus tells us to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect, this is what the calling is. The standard is set so far in the distance we could never reach it, but we should never be satisfied until we do. And as long as we're falling in love, it's going to keep pushing us in that direction. The life that we're called to here in this passage of Scripture is a life that is good 
a life that is abundant, and a life that's free. We have a good father who wants better for us than we could ever desire for ourselves. And so it's time for us to stop pursuing the things that leave us in chains and fall in love with what sets us free. And over the next nine weeks, we're going to be looking at those things in detail. And we're going to look next week at how love sets us free and how we can love beyond measure and without limits. We're going to look the next week at joy and peace and all of these things and see how we live these out practically in our lives in a way that puts our freedom on display, in a way that loves our God and worships him in everything that we do, but also in a way that loves our neighbors ourselves and gives them a picture of what it looks like to be set free by Christ. The speed limit has been taken away. We just have to ask ourselves how fast we're ready to go.